Doom and gloom coming soon. Listen to Third Eagle's tune. Doom and gloom. God is telling us the end is coming soon. Very soon. You'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon. Doom and gloom. Very soon. Rapture comes at night or noon. Doom and gloom. Very soon. If you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. You can win. Just don't sin. State of grace you must stay in. You can win. Filthy sins of flesh Just don't sin Think of Mary and her baby in the crash You can win, just don't sin Please don't watch pornography You can win, just don't sin Moan and sin is what will make your God angry You can win, just don't sin at millennium, God's peace will come again. Well, I've been sitting on that video for a few months. Woo. Took everything I had not to play it earlier. Thank you, Nate Navarro, for finding that for me. Um, and I felt like today was the right day to finally bust it out because we're in the, we're in the last hundred meters of our walk through the wild, wild and very weird book known as, as Revelation. And as we have been at pains to make plain throughout the course of the series, uh, yes, Revelation is a very serious book because life is serious and there is a sense in which everything is always at stake. And yet while Revelation is serious, it's also seriously joyful. Because the good news of the gospel is not that you can win if you just don't sin, so just don't do it. But rather, it's that Jesus has always already won on behalf of all of us terminal sinners. And so rather than doom and gloom, Revelation is a book of joy and justice. When the curtain of history gets pulled back so that we can see what's really going on. And we are reminded that the most important fact of history is not how much you did or didn't sin. And it's not who is or isn't president. No, the most important fact of history is that Jesus is Lord. Amen? That's the most important fact of world history. Now, I'm throwing us a bit of a curveball today because we're going to... We're going to jump ahead a little bit to Revelation 21 today, and then we will circle back to Revelation 17 through 20 next week. And the reason that, that we're doing this and jumping ahead to the end is that next week is, anybody know what next week is? It's, it's our annual women's retreat, breathe retreat. Ladies, I hope a lot of you go. It's a fantastic event, which means that hundreds of our ladies will be out, which means that thousands of our men will be out. That's the way the math tends to work on that. And so I just couldn't bear the thought that after walking this wild and weird walk through Revelation together, so many of us would miss out on the best part of the book. And so we're going to jump ahead to Revelation 21 today. We'll circle back to chapter 17 through 20 next week. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation 21 is very easy to find, just very back there, very back your Bible. We're going to read all of chapter 21 and then a few verses of chapter 22, and it'll be up here on the screen for you as well. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the, heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son, my daughter. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I want to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and holy mountain. And he showed me the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and on the 12 gates there were 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. Now the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. We know that's what a square is. And he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles and its length and width and height are the same. We know it's a square. And he measured its wall, 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Who knew? (laughs) The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like crystal glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh adjacent, and the twelfth amethyst. I practiced that a lot this week. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its glory, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now in the daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Last five verses. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming out from the throne of God of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." And there's no longer going to be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will have no need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. 
and they will reign with him forever and ever. Revelation 21, 22 through verse five. So I got a question for you. If you knew that the world was gonna end tomorrow, what would you do today? If you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that the world was gonna end tomorrow, what would you do today? Would you come running up here and perform the crappiest drum solo in world history and then go streaking out into the parking lot, steal a Ferrari, do donuts in your boss's front yard while eating donuts and then skydive while drinking a margarita made with Casamigas tequila? Am I being too specific on that? Um, then cop on a plane to the West Coast. You gotta gain some time, ice cream for lunch, maybe try to surf a 60-foot wave at Mavericks in Half Moon Bay, maybe die, but you know who cares? The world's about to end anyways. And then some more ice cream, Jason Smith's world-famous espresso martini for dinner, and then still or at least another Ferrari, gun it up to 200 miles an hour and drive off a cliff into the ocean just as the world ends. Now, as you can tell, I have not thought about this at all. But what about you? If you knew that the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do today? Well, legend has it that Martin Luther, hero of the Protestant Reformation, one of the greatest theological minds the world has ever seen, he was once asked this question. And he is rumored to have answered, if I knew that tomorrow was the end of the world, I would go plant an apple tree. Hmm. Now, either dear old Martin Luther was the most boring man to ever walk the face of the planet. Definitely never been to Sixth Street. You can tell this is not a man who's been to Sixth Street. Or else, you know, he, he thought about the end of the world a little bit differently than you and me tend to. And when we let Revelation's final vision of the end of the world sink in, Martin Luther and his apple tree start to make a little bit more sense. Because one of the things that you notice when you read Revelation 21 and 22 is that according to it, at least, the end of the world is not going to be the end of the world. According to Revelation, the end of the world is not the end of the world. And I know this might sound a little bit strange, and it's, it's very contrary to a lot of these super abstract, uh, vague, ethereal, spiritual gobbledygook thinking and talking about heaven that a lot of us are accustomed to. But according to Revelation, heaven is going to be filled with earthly things. Did you notice that heaven was described in very earthly terms? All right, what's heaven going to be like? What's going to be there? Well, there's... There's jasper, stone, and sapphire. There are gold streets and pearl gates. There are rivers. There are trees. And this is actually not just John the Revelator. This has a lot of synergy with other visions of God's new world that we get in Scripture. Isaiah had a vision of God's new world in Isaiah 25. Sounds a lot like John's. Listen to this. This is 25, 6 through 8. He says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice, pieces with marrow, and did I mention refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He'll swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from the earth. For the Lord God has spoken. And can you hear, can you see the synergy between what John and Isaiah are saying? Because according to John and Isaiah, the end of the world is not a demolition and evacuation project wherein human souls are sucked out of the bad physical world up to some vague spiritual heavenly realm where we all float around like ghosts, smiling at each other and staring at God in the most eternally boring church service that the world has ever seen. And when any of the rest of you try to think about heaven that way, it's just, I just thought we just kind of, we just smile at each other. 
and barely wait for all eternity. And that sound boring? Sounds like the most boring thing in the world to me. No, according to Isaiah, according to John the Revelator, according to the consistent testimony of Scripture, the end of the world is not a demolition and evacuation project, but rather it is the fulfillment, consummation, and celebration of all that the world was meant to be. Because there are a lot of things that will not be in God's new world. A lot of things will be lost in translation. Many worldly things will be gone. What? There will be no mourning, no crying, no suffering, no death, no cats, no WNBA, no NASCAR, right? So some things will not make it. I don't know if there will be cats. We're told the lion will lay down with the lamb. I suppose the lion is a feline. But many worldly things will remain. A lot of stuff is going to make it through the translation, right? There are going to be parties that put Jay Gatsby to shame. Concert collaborations featuring Bob Dylan Bach and Beyonce. There will be choice meats and wine that has been aged since the Big Bang, baby. Can you imagine how good that's going to be? Uh, our college pastor, Sydney, she's taking Greek right now. And she reminded me that when we are told that the gates of heaven are made of pearl in Revelation 21, verse 21, that Greek word for pearl is actually the word margarites. Which means that heaven's gates will be made of margaritas. This is going to be passing them out, man. Tell me God didn't have a sense of humor. Just walk in and you get one. That's why you take Greek. And along these lines, we also walk away with a very distinct impression that rather than being the most boring place ever, God's new world is going to be a place where there is so much awesome stuff to do. Isaiah and John have some synergy here because in another one of Isaiah's visions of God's new world, here's what he says. This is Isaiah 65, verse 17. He says, For behold, this is God talking, I create a new heavens and a new earth. What are they going to do there? Well, they're going to build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and they'll eat their fruit because heaven is not a place where nothing happens anymore. But rather, heaven is a place sizzling, right? Crack-a-lacking with energy, but absent all hurry and anxiety. Does that sound good? Oh man, there's gonna be so much good stuff to do. But you will never be in a hurry, never again. Because time and the lack of it is no longer your enemy. Because time and the fullness of it is now your friend. Does that sound good? Oh, I don't know about y'all, but that makes me so happy because I just love life. I haven't been bored since kindergarten. So much fun stuff to do. And so I'm, I'm always sad that I can't do all the things. Like I just recently discovered that no matter how fast or much you read, you're never going to be able to read more than about 5,000 books in a lifetime. You read 80 books a year. That's what extreme speed readers can do. You put in 60 years of 80 books a year, and you're barely even sniffing 5,000 books. It's very sad. I know that does not sound sad to a lot of you, but it's very sad to me. Side note, this is why I am so judgmental of the books that some people read. You get, I know, you get so few books in a lifetime. And you're going to waste those reads on the Da Vinci Code and Fifty Shades of Grey? The book clock is ticking on you. And you're reading the half-baked wannabe spiritual memoir of some wannabe famous Christian TikTok influencer who can't even write complete sentences or have a complete thought because he's too busy documenting his entire life on Instagram. I'll get off my soapbox now. Maybe reading's not your thing. I'm going to have time to read all the books in heaven. It makes me very happy. But if reading's not your thing, that's okay. Because there's going to be a lot of good stuff to do. And every good thing will have its place. All of it will have its place. 
Robert Jensen, he's one of my favorite theologians, he says this. He says, man, if we take Isaiah and John seriously, then we realize that the kingdom of God, man, y'all, it's going to be filled with jewelers and goldsmiths and contractors and connoisseurs of every sort. It's all going to be there. And the phrase that seems to most accurately communicate Scripture's assertion that the end of the world is not the end of the world but it's the fulfillment, consummation, and celebration of everything that the world was intended to be is Revelation 21, verse five. Right, let's hear what it says again. This is God talking. God says, and the one who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Now notice, God does not say, behold, I'm gonna make all new things. Right? God doesn't say, oh, this, this first draft was not very good, but it was my first time creating a universe, and so... I'll just throw it away and do a better one next time. That's what heaven will be. No, 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 no. Rather, God says what? Behold, I am making all things new. God's not gonna throw history into the fire at the end of history. But rather, God is gonna find a place for every good thing, every piece of it. One of my favorite details about Revelation 21 is how this cosmic universal vision of the new heavens and the new earth, it comes together in this specific image of what? Of the new Jerusalem. That is the name that Revelation gives to God's new world, the name that uh, Revelation gives to heaven. Now, Jerusalem is one of the, if not the most famous cities in the world. It's one of the oldest cities in the world. It was uh, attacked over 50 times, besieged over 20 times. It was utterly destroyed twice. According to scripture, it was the center of God's purposes in the world. And think about what a complicated history Jerusalem had. Think about everything those walls had seen. I mean, it was one of the happiest places on earth, right? It's where King David danced with such gratitude and ecstasy that the man's clothes fell off. You remember that story? Oh, right? it was the place where King Hezekiah begged God for deliverance from the Assyrians and God delivered. It was the place where Jesus healed the blind and the lame. It was the place where the Holy Spirit was poured out and ignited the wildfire. That was the church, man. Happiest place on earth. But then Jerusalem also had a dark history, didn't it? Those walls had seen some terrible things. Jerusalem was the place where David violated Bathsheba. Jerusalem was the place where King Solomon built a temple using the labor of slaves. It's a place where Jesus was crucified. Complicated history in Jerusalem. And do you know what else has a complicated history? You. Me. I don't know about you, but I, I have done things of which I am so unspeakably ashamed I have and I would have done more <laughs> if I'd been given opportunity and, and I've also been allowed in God's graciousness to be a part of things of which I am so unspeakably grateful and proud and it brings me such joy to know that if God can find a way if there is hope right for Jerusalem <laughs> then there must be hope for you and me too and every good and kind deed that we've done and every worthy project that we have accomplished every delicious meal that we have made every baby's butt that we have wiped and I have wiped a lot every tree that we've planted will not be wasted but it'll be waiting for us 
in God's new world. All of it. All of it will find a place. Even that thing you think couldn't possibly, God will find a way. And yet before we get too sentimental, we do need to at least acknowledge the, the elephant who's been standing in the room for the majority of our time in Revelation. You've seen him standing over there. This elephant could be described in many different ways, but it's probably most bluntly described something like this. Revelation is a bewildering combination of savagery and revelry. Revelation is this wild combination of savage, savage words and images and then these beautiful, joyful words and images. There are moments in Revelation that are so brutal that they make you wonder if all of those sweaty, mouth-breathing, psychotic, knucklehead, fundamentalist preachers are right. In which case, we are all in a lot of trouble. I am in big trouble. Big trouble. Y'all pray for me. But then there are these moments in Revelation that are so joyful, so hopeful, that they make you wonder if everything, every atom, every particle, every molecule, and yes, even every sweaty, psychotic, fundamentalist, knucklehead preacher is going to have a place in God's new world. You've probably picked up on it. One of my favorite examples is in Revelation 19. We get this beautiful image of the the wedding between Christ and the church. And and we're told, behold, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be amazing. But then just a few verses later, literally like six or seven verses later, we have another supper described. And it doesn't sound like nearly as much fun. This is Revelation 19, 17 through 18. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Oh, this would be great. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses. I don't know what the horses did, but and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Now, I happen to think we should probably not take this literally. But I would imagine there are some of you who think we should, and that is an opinion to which you are entitled, but just know that your boy's not coming over for dinner anytime soon because this is gross. It's a terrible image. It's awful. But then what's even more interesting is that after we get this brutal, violent, and seemingly final image of the kings of the earth having their corpses snacked on by the birds, right? That seems pretty final, (laughs) It's actually not the last thing that Revelation says about the kings of the earth. Just a few verses later, we're actually told this. This is Revelation 21, verses 23 through 26. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and who? The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now in the daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never be closed, and they, the kings of the earth, will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Now, wait a minute. How can the kings of the earth bring the glory and honor of the nations into the new Jerusalem if they are busy having their eyeballs pecked out by the birds? And the simplest and most honest observation I think we can make at this point is that it would seem as though God does not feel as if God owes us a clean and simple answer to this question. 
And I know that's going to make some of us uncomfortable. I get it because we have those more binary brains, you know, those black and white expectations. And so we think we should know who's in and who's out and how's it all going to work. God's supposed to tell me that stuff. And look, I get it. I really do. And I also tend to think that God should run everything by me. But over the years, it has become clear to me that God and I have a firm difference of opinion as to what explanations I am entitled to. God seems to think I'm entitled to far less than I do. And so instead of pretending that we know, we know for sure that everybody's in or that everybody who disagrees with us is out, what Revelation forces us to do is just live with this tension. Wherein, as verse 27 says, nothing unclean will enter the gates of the New Jerusalem. Nothing's going to make it. That's unclean. And yet, as verse 25 says, her gates will never be closed. They will always be open. I love the way Robert Jensen puts this. He says, we can therefore say no more than that without violence to the plot of God's saving history. God can bring all to the kingdom, but that he may not. Because God can do whatever God wants, right? It's a pretty fundamental Christian belief. God can do whatever God wants. And God wants everybody in the kingdom, right? We just read that. But God also wants to give you what you want. And so if you want to stand your stubborn butt outside the gates, the open gates of the new Jerusalem, well, thy will will be done. Let's end with this. About 2,000 years ago, Aristotle noted that when it comes to stories, endings determine everything. The ending of a story determines basically everything that's gone before it in the story. And when it comes to endings, there are basically only two endings that a story can have. Tragedy or comedy. All the stories, the millions, the billions, the trillions of stories that have been told, they're all basically reducible to tragedy or comedy. Now, tragedies are stories that take the shape of, of a rise and then a fall. Good fortune turning into catastrophe. Comedies, on the other hand, are stories that take the shape of like a, an unnodding of God taking something that's tangled, of something that's really hopelessly tangled and confused, but then miraculously gets untangled and healed in the end. And what I love about Revelation is the way it, it kind of leaves the ending up to you, doesn't it? Because your story can end in tragedy. Many do. It can end with you selfishly serving yourself standing stubbornly outside the open gates of the New Jerusalem. It can end like that. Or your story can end, can take the shape of a comedy okay, in the highest, holiest sense of the term. It can end with you grinning like a holy idiot, smiling from ear to ear because against all odds, Jesus found a way to, to untangle your history that history you thought couldn't possibly be unknotted. He found a way to untangle it. He found a way to atone for your failures. He found a way to heal your wounds. And he found a way to incorporate your story into a much bigger and better and more beautiful story that will go on forever and ever and ever and ever, happily ever after. And that is the ending that God wants to give your story. God's offering your story. But you know, the choice is yours. And thy will 
will be done. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here, but we are so grateful that we are. We come before you, God, and and we confess that um, we are complicated people. There's a lot of complicated history in the room this morning. Oh, God, we've done some, we've been a part of some just incredibly beautiful and kind and gracious and compassionate things. But we have all also done some terrible things, some shameful things. And it can be hard to believe that you can find a way to make Jerusalem new. And so we pause this morning and we just receive this good news. We are reminded that the new Jerusalem, it comes down from heaven as a gift. It's not something we accomplish. It's a gift we receive. And it's a gift we seek to receive together this morning. God, for all those who think that there's no way their story could be untangled, that there's no way all this stuff that we love could really have a place in your good world, your new world, I just pray that the good news of the gospel would sink a little deeper into our hearts. We would be reminded that every good thing will be waiting for us because you are a good and gracious Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.